Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on the Mushroom Hour podcast, we have the distinct privilege of being joined by Dr. Andy Letcher. Dr. Letcher is a writer, performer, and scholar of religion who began life as an ecologist, completing his doctorate in philosophy in ecology at Oxford University. After a spell as an environmental activist during the 1990s, especially during the anti-Rhodes protests, he moved across to the humanities, completing a PhD at King Alfred's College, Winchester. He is an expert on contemporary alternative spiritualities, especially modern paganism, neo-shamanism, and psychedelic spiritualities. He is especially interested in the tangled and sometimes torturous relationship between science and spirituality and in the so-called dark green religion. He has written papers on the distribution of mammals across continents, fairies, mysticism, and psychedelic spirituality, just to name a couple diverse topics. And Andy is also the author of the comprehensive work, Shroom, A Cultural History of the Magic Mushroom that examines ethnomycological research, legends, and myths surrounding humanity's relationship with psychoactive fungi. Andy, thank you so much for joining us on the Mushroom Hour. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a treat to have you, not only for your work around shroom and the cultural history of magic mushrooms, all that's fantastic, but I'm just a huge fan on your examinations of things like spirituality, the ideas of self and how that's changing. You know, you get into so many fascinating topics that it'll be a treat just to kind of cover as much as we can with you. Well, let's see how far we get. (laughs) Let's see how far we get. Yeah, pretty massive topics I just laid out there. Um, And before we jump in, I do like to walk through a little bit of biographical. Obviously, everyone's story is a life story. So maybe just some synchronistic sequence of events that led you into this realm of studying you know, spirituality and really taking a look at this blend of kind of anthropology, spirituality, and psychedelia, psychedelia uh, that, that you research. Yeah. So, I mean, um, and maybe the question starts with why, why <laughs> spirituality? Why look at these things? Well, you know, the human quest for meaning is perhaps one of the most interesting questions there is, right? Um, as you as you beautifully said in your introduction, I, I began as a as an ecologist, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much at undergraduate level. I loved it at undergraduate level. And when I actually came to do research, somewhere I w- I was coming at it as an idealist, and I wanted to change the world, and I wanted to use scientific knowledge of ecology to make the world a better place. And my colleagues really had little interest in that. They were, you know, after the next big fat research grant or the next award and casting a slightly um, unfortunate picture. It's not, it wasn't quite that bad. Anyway, I got very disillusioned and I, I went and did what I call real ecology. I became a, an environmental activist. Mm. And like all activists, eventually I got burnt out. And then I, I'd given up this career as an ecologist and I was like what what on earth am I going to do you know what what am I doing I was signing on the dole welfare and um really was pretty depressed and didn't know what I was going to do and so one stormy night on a full moon I went out to the hill behind my house and I roared to the moon and the sky and the gods and I said what do you want me to do show me I don't know what to do 
we've all been there. I think we've all, all of us have had some kind of moment like that. Wow, that's vivid. And then the question is, you know, did anything happen? Well, for me, it did. Literally two days later, the phone rang. And remember, this is before we all had smartphones or cell phones. You know, this was a phone connected to the wall. So luckily, I was I was there when the phone rang. Right. And um, it was a guy called Graham Harvey, who became my second PhD supervisor. And he said, oh, hi, Andy. And I, I'd met him through my work as an environmental activist. He said, you know, I've got funding for a PhD in the study of religion. How would you like to do it? And you could maybe study the spiritualities of radical environmentalism. Have a think. And so I put the phone down and um, was like, well, there's an answer. <laughs> it's a, it's a <laughs> no-brainer. And okay. um, so without knowing anything about the humanities or the study of religion, I shifted across to this other discipline. And for about the first 18 months, I didn't understand a word that anyone was saying. It was like being in another country. And then gradually I'd done enough reading and I, I realized, gosh, I'm enjoying this. And we're starting to examine here the questions that really I hoped I would be able to answer through science. But actually, I now realize are far more metaphysical and that science just isn't equipped to answer those sorts of questions. So questions about meaning, our relationship with the world, spirituality, uh, and of course, psychedelics as well. So I'm really sitting here because of a phone call that happened out of the blue and the generosity of Graham Harvey, to whom I'm eternally grateful. Well, and we have to give credit to the moon and your bestial <laughs> roar as well which of course was the signal to the universe that you were ready to give yourself over to the next calling and there, and there Graham was, you know, just to, I think it's important always to define terms, especially something as broad as the concept of spirituality. And I think so many people nowadays don't necessarily identify with institutional religion. They say, I'm a spiritual person, not a religious person, but as someone who kind of has this background in ecology, someone who studied a diversity of modern religions or spiritual traditions. I mean, when we say spirituality, for you, kind of what is that concept in its essence? And I know that's a massive question, but how can we try to define that that word? Well, it's a great question. And it's not actually a word I like very much, but mm. let, let, me, let me talk you through why. So, spirituality has always been contrasted against something else. It's always been defined in relation to something else. So in the Middle Ages, spirituality was defined against corporeality, the body. So spirituality was what anything that turned your attention upwards to God, in opposition to anything that, that turned your attention downwards to the mundane world. So, you know, carnal temptations, all that kind of stuff, appetites, lusts, um, you know, all this kind of stuff that the church gets worked up about. Well, in, in contemporary discourse, spirituality tends not to be contrasted so much against the body, or some, sometimes it is, but it tends to be contrasted against religion, as you just said. So people identify as spiritual but not religious, as though there's something otiose about religion, there's something um, ossified. A metaphor I like to use is of a volcano. So spirituality is the pure lava as it bubbles up, as it erupts up from the earth. But religion is when it's solidified and become dogmatic and rigid and unbending and unmoving. And so 
I kind of get that. There's a lot to be critiqued about contemporary religion. At the same time, if you take a step back and start to look sociologically at contemporary spirituality, people really do behave just like religions do. So they organise themselves into groups and they have disagreements about the right way to do things. I mean, look at the proliferation of yoga styles. Everyone is defining their own unique brand of yoga. Yeah, there are disagreements. There are controversies and scandals and theological arguments. And so from a kind of sociological point of view, it's really rather difficult to distinguish contemporary spirituality from contemporary religion. So Mm. I prefer the term religiosity. Religiosity is perhaps more encompassing. Or even I prefer just understanding. We're, We're seeking understanding. And yeah, you know, if people say they're spiritual, it can also come with a certain amount of sanctimony as well, which again is um, something one tends to find in traditional religion. So I'm not sure this desire to move beyond religion has actually got us very far. I think we're perhaps dealing with this, the fundamental problem, which is that we're humans and being human is a tricky and complicated thing. Yeah, and it gets us to those broad questions of how human societies end up getting structured or movements or you know this idea of centralization and you know maybe that's the bigger problem people are having not that it's an organized religion per se but that it's overly centralized and controlled by the few that you know are paying lip service to the ideals but aren't embodying them but i love the analogies you just laid out about yoga and you find that with certain kind of new age traditions there's inevitably a set of sacraments. There are purity tests, you know, if you are virtuous enough and if you are following, you know, whatever the given, that that's really a potent insight to have. And I guess for yourself, is your concept of spirituality maybe like that underlying idea of just understanding what is animating this universe of matter and, and immaterial all around us? You know, what is the base level that we're trying to get to? How much of that for you is informed by the concept of ecology you know how much does that early work in understanding ecological systems and subsequently play into your kind of understanding of religiosity or spiritualism Mm, so i was so i was raised church of england but in a very kind of loose loose kind of way i'm aware of your listenership may not be familiar with the sort of rural middle class of southern england but you know, I was taken to church at Christmas and Easter and a few Sundays in between. And it was more something you did to belong as an expression of class identity than any kind of piety. But it was sort of expected that in my schooling as well, that I would, you know, get confirmed and take communion and what have you. And it was during confirmation classes that I just thought, you know, this really doesn't make sense to me. This is a religion that originates in a landscape that I do not know, in Palestine, in a semi-arid landscape. And I had this very rural upbringing. And I was having as a child, I suppose now I would call them kind of numinous or perhaps mystical experiences, just by being out in the world. And so I rejected Christianity because it it really didn't speak to those experiences that I had. So, for example, in in the church, in our village church, in the churchyard, there is a yew tree that is a thousand years old. And I found far more meaning by being in the presence of that tree than I did being inside the church. You know, don't get me wrong, I'm 
I'm not trying to knock Christianity. I'm just trying to say that for me, it didn't speak to me. And so for me, that that quest, if you like, for meaning was always with the other than human. It was looking not up so much as out. You're getting at an idea that, you know, spiritual tradition has as much to do with the land in which it was birthed from in terms of how it's going to resonate and serve people. That's an incredibly powerful concept. And we talk about, you know, looking to nature or the other than human as inspiration. In your studies now of different spiritual traditions, how much is that some of the fundamental underlying impulse behind a lot of these traditions? Because I kind of say that. I always say nature was the first religion. But is that the case? I mean, is this something that the impulse you felt about wanting that connection with something like a thousand-year-old yew tree, do you think that kind of births a lot of spiritual traditions? Gosh, what a great question. I mean, what now we're, now having asked me about spirituality, you're asking me about religion. And in the study of religion, there are at least 50 definitions for what religion is, and there's no agreement. I think people make sense and meaning of the world around them, right? And so indigenous cultures, First Nation cultures, tend to find their systems of meaning in the world around them, in the immediate world, in in the tangible world around them, which is not to say they don't posit other worlds or other dimensions of being. But, for example, it's often said that in the modern scientific worldview, we view the world as a machine. And that is certainly the case of early modern science. But it's only possible to do that when you have machines, right? It's a metaphor generated by something that we've created. In the same way now, one of the most common metaphors for consciousness or the brain is the computer. The computer is is our dominant metaphor for the world. But if you're living, if you have, say, a a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, you can but see the world as alive because you are just surrounded by aliveness. So how could you possibly see it as a machine Everything is alive. Everything has aliveness. So I'm sort of answering your question in a rather circular way. But but whatever that impulse is in humans to find meaning in the world, yes, that originary impulse came from the world because that was that was the world that we knew. Right. Now, the problem is in our modern urbanized, industrialized lives, we have alienated ourselves from the, from the other than human world. And through no fault of our own. It's just this gradual process that's happened as we've moved from the country to the cities and industrialization and and what have you. And now there is this attempt to refine spirituality within the other than human. And that's what the scholar of religion, Bron Taylor, calls dark green religion. It's it's religions or spiritualities, if you like, that are trying to refine that meaning in the other than human and in a context of engaging with the ecological crisis. Right. And it's probably a unique time in human history where we're conscious of where some of these traditions are emanating from. I mean, you just laid out beautifully how it's the culture, the world that we are surrounded by individually that informs any kind of spiritual impulse or religious tradition from the analogies we use, the symbols we use. But I'm sure that up until now, we haven't always been conscious of that, that these things just emerge out of the fabric of 
the realities of, of the culture from which they emerge from. Um, so it's interesting now to think right. of this idea of a dark green religion. And that, and that theme, I just tried to elucidate that you, I think you described much better. I think that's a core tenet to a lot of your work, whether we're talking about examining, you know, just any kind of spirituality, when we're talking about examining, which we will talk about the cultural use of mushrooms, a lot of this has to be seen through the lens of the people and the realities of the time from which some of these things emerged from, including theories about mushroom religion spanning the entire globe and all that kind of thing that emerges from a time and place and is informed by that time and place. So that that's just so important to remember. And it's probably like a huge anthropological theme that many listeners are aware of, but I think it's something, I think it's something really powerful. But I was going to ask you about that dark green religion because that word itself is very appealing and alluring. And I want to be part of the dark green religion. I don't even know what it is. So that then is the definition kind of folks like myself who are looking back to nature and back kind of out of the urban landscape we've created to find a connection and, and another layer of understanding. That's kind of the dark green religion. Well, it is, but it's also what makes it dark green rather than light green is this this active engagement with the ecological crisis and how can we be activists, really? So it's, it's where activism starts to meet religiosity. And so, you know, a fine example in your neck of the woods would be Starhawk and um, the Reclaiming Collective. And I mean, way back in the 80s, I was reading Starhawk's work where she's combining ritual and magic with political action and engagement. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a strong undercurrent in environmental activism nowadays is a connection to kind of magical ritual and the immaterial that kind of goes hand in hand and finds a powerful ally. Uh, and another huge theme in your work that kind of gets to this idea of where these traditions and religions and things emerge from, you know, that fabric of society kind of informs what that tradition looks like. How does a society's idea of quote unquote self play into this? Because I saw a talk you did about ontological anarchy, <laughs> the ecological self, which is probably one of my favorite talks right now, because I think you get to some amazing ideas, but I guess how, how do conceptions of self guide spiritual traditions or Maybe more broadly, how do concepts of self shape a culture? And maybe what is what are some of the definitions that you work with in looking at societies and their definitions of self? Well, since I, I gave that talk, I've done a lot more reading on the nature of the self. And it's complicated, right? There's a whole philosophy of the self. There's a whole psychology of the self. There's a whole neuroscience of the self. Hmm. and um, no agreement as to what the self is. And there's a distinction to be made between the, the word person is perhaps a better word to use. Person derives from this Greek word persona, the mask, obviously used in um, Freudian and Jungian psychology. But we have the idea of the person, which is is cultural. So it's well known that in the West we we privilege individualism and we see the individual as the unit of analysis of society and this is much contested and much disputed and a lot of argument about whether this is a good thing or a bad thing but then there's this internal idea of who we are and 
William James seemed to think that pretty, you know, it's a human universal actually to think of ourselves as an individual. But that said, our sense of, of what is me and what is mine can be quite large. And so we in, incorporate my reputation, my works, my family, you know, my friends. Um, William James has this quite elastic idea of of what the self is it incorporates many things even though right at the top if you think of it perhaps as a pyramid there's some kind of i the letter i <laughs> not an illuminati i <laughs> secret symbolism i'm using it yeah see i'm using the wrong imagery here i'm actually being controlled by the illuminati right now no there's some kind of ego some unitary sort of self that ties all this stuff together now in ecological thought in deep ecology it was thought that we can use this idea as a way of making the world a better place if we could expand the elastic limits of the self to include everything in ecology then we wouldn't need any kind of ethic to stop the rainforest being cut down we would stop the rainforest being cut down because it's a part of me that's being cut down right i am the thinking part of the rainforest and in the talk you mentioned, I'm, I'm basically critiquing that idea because what I don't like about it is that there's still this kind of singular person. It seems quite about the self again. I'm the one doing the identifying. There's still a me at the centre of things. And certainly my own experiences, psychedelic and otherwise, and talking to other people, I don't think that's quite the right view of the self. I think there can be multiple selves. And I think the aim is rather to make the boundaries of the self porous or pervious. And I get that idea from a Southern African teacher called Colin Campbell. This idea that the self is something that unless we pay attention to it, it becomes like a carapace. It becomes like a shell. And we, through ritual, through um, austerities, through vigil through psychedelics all the stuff we do in the name of spirituality we do it to render ourselves pervious to the other to allow the other in now why would i think that let me give you a, a very tangible example although because of work and family commitments my psychedelic exploration is somewhat on hold <laughs> i can refer back to my youth and i've done an awful lot of picking of liberty caps in back in the day and it's reached the point now where i can be out on the moor in the autumn where they grow and i'll just be out for a walk and i'll be walking along and suddenly i'll stop and i'll look to my left and there three meters away are two liberty caps just sticking up now there was nothing conscious i wasn't looking but some there's some kind of relationship now set up between me and the liberty caps whereby some some bodily part of me knows that they're there and i'm not i'm not suggesting i have any special kind of ability i know many other people who have experienced this the uh, the british nature writer charles foster speaks about his son who when he was very young just would walk into a field and turn over a stone and there would be a toad and they used to call him toad catcher tom and i think once we allow the other into us it's in in some way so once we've rendered the self pervious, the other can reside within us in some sense. Now, it's mysterious. I, I have no idea where or, or how. 
Well, and the inevitable question is then how does this relate to consciousness? Because more and more theories, just to bring in another massive concept into the fray, you know, there are more and more theories about this idea of a collective field of consciousness. And then we each have kind of our individuated expression of that consciousness. But in a similar situation you described there, you can kind of reconnect yourself to this general field and thereby you're doing something maybe instinctual or yet you see them, you know, the mushrooms over there, you look over, but you're not thinking about it. There was no tangible. It was just in this flow of unified consciousness, you are then connected with everything around you. Again, being reached by states maybe of psychedelic experience, ascetism, uh, you know, like fasting or meditation. So does this have a similarity to consciousness? Can we even push these two cosmologies together? I very much haven't studied the philosophy of consciousness, so anything I say comes with that caveat. Um, I'd say there's perhaps two, two possibilities here. One is the panpsychist explanation. Panpsychism states that consciousness is not something that humans possess. It's There is some kind of experience to being anything. Right. So there is a interiority to being an electron or an atom or a planet or a universe perhaps or definitely a mushroom doesn't mean to say its consciousness is identical to ours that would be anthropomorphic but yeah there's there is some kind of interior experience to being a mushroom and so at some point you know there's some kind of resonance or recognition between my consciousness and the consciousness of the mushroom whatever that is i'm not sure that fully explains why it is that there is this bodily knowing of that the mushroom is there. And I'm my own inclination now is towards the idea that we are receivers of consciousness rather than generators of consciousness. Mm. And that consciousness is perhaps more like a field. And therefore I am in the presence of the consciousness field of the mushroom and some kind of touching or communication or resonance or something occurs between these two consciousnesses and that's how i know the mushroom is there but because of having rendered myself pervious or established a kind of communication or relationship with that mushroom i can recognize it when i feel it and perhaps we, we're bombarded with these kind of experiences all the time but i i don't recognize them because i haven't i haven't paid them enough attention so it may be that the ravens that fly overhead are constantly trying to talk to me in that way, but I don't hear it because I've not paid them enough attention. This brings us to animism and this idea of the world as being full of people, only some of whom are human. And our, our aim is to try and establish right relationships with the other than human people with whom we share the world. And that means giving them our attention, becoming actively receptive to these other than humans so that we can hear when they're when they're talking and i think what you're describing for a lot of us conjures images of that's kind of our ideal spirituality you know that's the kind of connection that we want to have with other living organisms and even non-living material things on this planet is to have that kind of field to field connection that kind of knowing and you just brought up animism you know, so do you find that this idea of a permeable self that is interacting with the greater sense, maybe a capital S self, do you find that idea showing up when you study things like paganism and neo-shamanism 
and some of these other traditions, or maybe maybe not neo, maybe you know ancient indigenous culture. You know, do you find this this thread coming through? It seems core to me. Yes, we do. So, I think modern contemporary paganism, neo paganism, is starting to become for, far more animist. It's you know, it's it's a reflexive religion. It's it's reading scholarship and informing itself by scholarship. But you know, I'm doing some research now on the use of psychedelics by contemporary druids in Britain, and I'm my argument is that this idea of a pervious self, an animistic self that's in community, it's, it's essentially it's a, a community self. There's no self outside of community. I'm finding this model is a better description of what people are doing and the experiences they're having than the classic deep ecology ecological self that I elucidated earlier. And now this idea of community ecology, you, know, you find this, when we talk about mushrooms and fungi, they're perfect illustrators of this idea because of all the symbioses they engage in and the way they operate in an ecology. It's hard to define them just at, by themselves. They're always in relation to something else. And yeah, you can expand that out. You know, we're collections of more bacteria and virus cells than even human cells. Right. Do you think then that this animistic kind of defining things by a community with semi-permeable selves, I mean, do you think that's backed up by science and we are kind of getting to a kernel of truth in our experience here? And that's with the caveat that I haven't studied consciousness <laughs> or spirituality, uh, but do we think we're starting, you know, just when the idea, when these spiritual concepts and scientific concepts start aligning, are, are we onto something here? To an extent, it's backed up by science. So, for example, yes, you've already talked about the extent to which we are thoroughly symbiotic beings, or as Donna Haraway would say, sympoetic beings. We we come into being in relationship with other things. So, yeah, you, you've already talked about the bacteria and viruses and fungi that make our bodies their home and without which we, we wouldn't be able to digest our food and you know, in, in every conceivable sense, we are entangled in that way. But I suppose science would probably say, but yeah, but unless it goes wrong, we're generally not aware of it. And so it's not really part of ourself. Mm. Um, it's only when we get a stomach upset that we notice that, you know, we're dependent on bacteria. So if you get food poisoning or whatever. But there's another way in which science can help us. So irrespective of whether fungi have consciousness or not they are agents they have agency so we tend when we're discussing psychedelics to think about human history what we've done what psychedelics mean for us but ever since gordon wasson went to mexico in the mid-1950s we have identified pretty much every psilocybin containing mushroom species in the world We've identified the active ingredients. We've worked out how to synthesize them. We've worked out how to cultivate psilocybin mushrooms on industrial scales. We have created distribution networks in spite of their illegality or the fact that it is not licensed to use them. And one could argue that this is some clout this mushroom has. It is by synthesizing these, these um, tryptamine alkaloids, it is bending human behavior to its own aims, perhaps. You know, the mushroom is doing very well out of this relationship with us. There are probably far more 
there's far more psilocybin now on the planet than at any point in the Earth's history, probably because we are being manipulated. Manipulated is too strong a word. We are being gently persuaded and encouraged by the mushroom. And of course, this is what Terence McKenna argued. He said, what the mushroom seeks is a symbiotic relationship with us. Well, he put it in slightly more fantastical terms. He, he thought that there would be some kind of fusing of our DNA and that we, we would just be synthesizing psilocybin internally. <laughs> but already, you know, we are in sympoesis with this mushroom. And it's not just us that's getting something out of this relationship. The mushroom is getting an awful lot out of this relationship. And then when we move into, you know, more fabulous speculation, as a lot of people argue that maybe the mushroom is trying to manipulate human behavior to stop us fucking the planet. <laughs> well, that that was the question. You know, is the presence of tryptamine alkaloids in the environment nature's way? You know, maybe when it's coming through fungi, they realized through the blending of fields with humans, like, wow, these people are messed up. We need to do something to help them. and tryptamine alkaloids kind of came to the fore. Obviously, they were around likely before humans, but made themselves more noticeable. The joke is, you know, psychedelic mushrooms always pop up in areas of human population because they're trying to reach out and say, hey, you need to permeate yourself. We've brought the tryptamine alkaloids. You need to permeate yourself. I mean, I don't know where I want to go with that. Well, I mean, it's the $64 million question is, you know, are, are mushrooms going to save us or, uh, are, you know, is ayahuasca going to save us? Um, right, right. Our psychedelics are going to permeate ourselves and then save us from ourselves. And I, I'm on the fence. I'm on the fence about that. I mean, undoubtedly, they open our eyes to the other than human. They produce experiences that I've I've labeled anemaphanes. It's a, my old Latin teacher would curse me for mixing Latin and Greek. But it's a manifestation of spirits or aliveness or souls or you know it was right there on my very first mushroom trip when I was way back a spotty 19 year old and I held a conker the seed of a horse chestnut tree just marveling at the the, the grain the shiny grain of this seed and seeing its aliveness its isness its beingness well that's an experience that you hear time and time again from the mushroom experience Everyone says, everyone but everyone says, you need to take mushrooms away from people, out in nature. You need to pay attention to what they, they want to show you, which is, hey, look, there's a tree. It's amazing. Look at the tree. It's fantastic. Have you ever seen a tree before? I'm going to show you a tree. Look at the tree. It's alive. Yeah. And undoubtedly, they do that. But way back in the 60s, the great scholar of religion, Houston Smith, said that what psychedelics do is that they occasion religious experiences, but they rarely occasion religious lives. I think he's being a little harsh because, so, you know, you speak to so many people involved in alternative spirituality, and often their gateway to that was a psychedelic experience, often back in the 60s. So I think, but I think it's a good, it's a good point that, yes, you can have that extraordinary experience of the other than human, but then, then what? It's not enough to just have seen the tree. You've then got to stop that tree being cut down, right? Yes. And that was a question of, does the psychedelic renaissance help us permeate our calcified selves and make us more connected with the world and protect the ecology around us? Or 
is responsible use of psychedelics and lives that are kind of informed by the beneficent side of psychedelics only possible once we decalcify, learn the sense of greater ecology, and then the subsequent psychedelic experiences are that much more productive, or maybe it's a cycle that feeds into itself. Uh, but yeah, you find a lot of these same themes at, at play, and it's hard when you hear about anecdotal mirrored experiences between so many people that it gives them that sense of opening up to, you know, these very ideas we're talking about. Most people, like you said, first get familiarized through psychedelic experience. So it's interesting to think about what that interplay is, because then you think of someone like uh, Jung, who many people have, Carl Jung, many people have hypothesized that he actually did take many psychedelics. Uh, but I've, I've adopted more of the train of thought that he wanted us to work through our own subconscious and all the messages we were already getting before moving on to psychedelics. So really uh, hmm. interesting yeah. question. So, I mean, I think here psychedelics have that role to play. I mean, sorry, I've got too many thoughts going around my head. Likewise, one that's of why the, I just threw five questions at you. Yeah. One of the, the main movements in contemporary psychedelic culture is this move towards psychedelic therapy, which is great. Who, yes. who wouldn't want people to be healed of trauma or that whole range of mental illness that psychedelics could be good for. That's great. My fear is that that becomes the dominant legitimate way of consuming psychedelics. And this other way, which is opening our eyes or how did McKenna put it, abrading the calcareous tumor of ego yes. so that we can see the other than human. My fear is that that other way will get lost or marginalized and i th in many ways i think it's the more important that you don't have to be ill to take psychedelics and there's great benefits provided they're done safely and judiciously they can it's like they take the scales of people's eyes it's the first thing because we have grown up in this materialist rationalist culture that says nature is dead consciousness only resides in humans and to think otherwise is escapist or childish or a fantasy or moving away from the world. Well, psychedelics are the great remedy to that because they show you, no, that tree is alive. It has aliveness. It has, there is some kind of experience to being a tree, to being a thousand year old yew tree. Right. Um, it has an interiority and that they, they don't get you there through rational argument they get you there through an encounter with sublime or inspiring revelation that is just feels right down here and I'm, I'm pointing to my heart and perhaps my belly here so in that sense i think they really they are vital in that sense but they're not enough and without social and political change writ large it, we're not going to get anywhere but maybe it's the first step towards a more active or more engaged ecology. I tend to agree with that. I think in a society that's gone too far down the immaterial and not respecting the other and the, I love that word, interiority of other living organisms that aren't human, you know, in a society that's gone too far down that route, maybe they are this critical tool to kind of blow the gates, if you subscribe to gate theory, or blow the doors off those conceptions and open you up in a very radical way that the society otherwise won't cultivate to kind of start us back in that direction. And a question that I did have is how 
this idea of a more permeated self, how these narratives around our connection with the ecology around us. I think it's a mindset more and more and more and more people are getting to, whether they're interested in mushrooms or however they find it, psychedelics, however they get there, I think more people are resonating with that. What does that mean for our authority structures and the power structures of our society? I know we, we made a joking reference to the Illuminati, but I know a lot of people feel like there are these calcified structures that are keeping things kind of the way they are, maybe our states of consciousness the way they are. I mean, how does that interplay happen between traditional societal seats of power that are so ingrained and this new or this emergent way of thinking in community ecology? Is this going to necessitate basically just a radical shift in how we organize? You know, I like to think that humans are these self-organizing beings that can be guided like many other plants, microorganisms, fungi, animals seem to be guided by this balance with ecology that's not necessarily conscious, but maybe they're just tapped into the fields of other things. Is that the reality or do these societal structures and these seats of power kind of function in the way that humans do organize? I guess, is it natural or as we move to more connection with the natural world and more kind of open understanding that we're talking about, will all that have to change? Well, I, I'm kind of, <laughs> kind of pessimistic about humans and power. So when I was very involved in environmental activism, we didn't like hierarchy and supposedly we had a flat organizational structure. Right. And what happened was the people and they were always the men with the loudest voices, dominated. Mm. And I think social structures at their best exist to prevent that. That What they should do is prevent that kind of, it's a warlord mentality, is, is, is dominator culture. Right. And in theory, that's what democracy does. But my God, we know how, um, what a joke democracy is. The warlords get to uh, still take over somehow. Yeah. So I, I always, I mean, McKenna is a huge reference point, even though I have have critiqued and disagree with some of his, many of his ideas, he's still a, a vital kind of reference point for me. And he, he did talk about what a psychedelic society would look like. And I think he plucked this figure out of the air, but he, he used to say that, if 15% of the population were taking psychedelics or had had a psychedelic experience, we would have a psychedelic society. And I don't know, have we reached that point yet? I don't know. It's hard to know because, you know, psychedelic people tend to hang out with psychedelic people and feel like we're a great big movement. And then if you <laughs> move back into norm culture, you realize how small we are, how few we are. And I, I think I would disagree with him. I think it's having regular psychedelic experiences. I don't mean every other day, but maybe a few times a year. And I'm, I'm reminded of Victor Turner, the anthropologist Victor Turner's theories of ritual and his idea that what, what ritual did is it, it took the, the rigid structures of society or what he called societas and it, it melts them. It's like if they're frozen into a block of ice, what ritual at its best does is it melts them into a, this kind of fuzzy phase called communitas and allows change to happen, and then it, then it refreezes again. 
So maybe a psychedelic society be one in which we have regular psychedelically informed bouts of communitas that allow change to happen, that allow the power structures to be challenged and revisited and reborn. And I, I still think we need, we probably need those structures to prevent the warlords, but they need to be much better than they are now. And maybe that kind of psychedelic society would be a way in which we could prevent warlord culture, to use that phrase. But I, this is not my area of expertise. And I, as I say, I am quite pessimistic about human nature. Yeah, it's not really my ex- area of expertise either. Just the more I talk about these concepts like an ecological self or you know, recognition of connection to all the things around us, psychedelically informed experience that gives you some of those insights and more, I don't find that mirrored in the political and social structures that kind of set the boundaries in our society and affect the narratives of society. And I think a lot of the most insightful people I talk to kind of have your take, which is, well, those structures are a part of the human experience. You know, I talked about humans being these self-organizing beings that don't need leaders. But when you get in that space, inevitably leaders emerge, hopefully not because of their warlord mentality, but leadership and some kind of hierarchy seems to be part of the human experience. So maybe it can evolve with insights pulled back from the psychedelic realm. And to kind of then blend this with your work in Shroom, a lot of people posit that those kind of societies where structures and leadership were informed by ritual psychedelic use were kind of the norm around the world. You know, there were these mushroom imbibing societies and they were more equitable than our own. And we kind of lost touch with that. And now hopefully we can remember that again and kind of achieve these psychedelic ritual societies. Is that the case though? I mean, were there really these ancient, or or is this idea of a ritual psychedelically informed society, something new that hasn't been done before? Well, it's a fascinating question. And for the most part, we can't, we simply can't answer it. I mean, my expertise is Britain, Britain and Europe. And A lot of people have posited that the ancient Iron Age Druids were using psychedelics, or perhaps the builders of Stonehenge were. And the simple answer is there's no evidence one way or the other. So we're free to say that we did, or we're free to say that they didn't. And this is me with my my scholar's hat on, right? You know, and I'm beholden to the rules of evidence and... um, I'm I'm happy happy for people to argue the case either way, but we're doing it on the same lack of evidence. But the one corner of the world where we can say categorically, or as near as we can get, that you know there is an ancient tradition of mushroom use, is Mesoamerica, contemporary Mexico, right. where we have historical records from the conquistadors, we have historical records from indigenous people, or certainly suggestive records in the codices that they left and we have archaeological records and we have an incredibly diverse psychedelic mycoflora there so it all adds up you can triangulate it and go right but everything else all the other evidence that people put forward you can always come up with alternative explanations so for example the ancient rites of Eleusis in ancient Greece this extraordinary theatrical mystery religion that any citizen could go to, I think they had to pay a fee, plus a change. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's a great procession up to it. And then at certain points, this 
this chalice was passed around called the Kaikion, and you entered the Telesterion, this mysterious hall, and beyond that, we don't know. Well, it, it seems obvious, right, that the Kaikion contained some kind of psychedelic compound because everyone comes out raving about their experiences, although they're not allowed to talk about them. They all say they've had some life-changing experience. Mm. So yeah, absolutely. They could have been taking some kind of psychedelic compound and various scholars have supposed what that might have been. Equally, we can have all sorts of non-ordinary experiences without the use of psychedelics. We can do it through fasting. We can do it through sleep deprivation. We can do it... God. Charismatic Christianity has people speaking in tongues, right? And they do that through enthusiasm. I don't know if you've ever done any breath work, but, you know, you just change your breathing patterns and you can have, near as damn it, a psychedelic experience. Yeah. So we really can't say. And against that kind of utopian idea of the psychedelic society, we, we you know, I give you the Aztecs. The, the Aztecs were possibly the most psychedelic culture on earth before our own. And they committed human sacrifice, not right. something that we can accommodate within our contemporary morality. Though, actually, the reasons why they did it are more nuanced and complicated. Perhaps I'll save that for another podcast. But, you know, the priests used to come down carrying the flayed human skin of their, of their victims. And the people would raise their hands to the priests, screaming, the gods are coming, the gods are coming. Well, it's not a great advert for psychedelics. <laughs> yeah, if that's our example, I, I, I'm not sure what to think of that. Yeah, maybe I should say in their defense that the reason they did this was that it was to do with their warfare. And at the same time, we thought the supreme idea of warfare was that you had a big army that killed as many people of the other big army as you could. What the Aztecs did is they captured prisoners, so they didn't have to kill hundreds and hundreds of people. And they executed their, a small number of prisoners. So in many ways, their human sacrifice was far more enlightened than our bludgeoning medieval warfare, which they would have regarded as abhorrently barbaric and a dreadful waste of human life. So maybe they are a great example. So maybe they actually were onto some kind of elevated morality through psychedelically informed ritual. Well, I've read, yes, a lot about the Mesoamerican tradition, but what's interesting and something that I think gets brought up some in your work is this idea, again, about theories and narratives and the fabric from which they emerge. So in your research, did a lot of the theories about, you know, whether it's Allegro's Mushroom and the Cross, whether it's examination of the Vedic text would be a no-brainer because it was by the original theories by Wasson himself, but did a lot of these ideas in non-Mesoamerican cultures being somehow mushroom influenced come after Wasson had his initial findings with Maria Sabina, Life Magazine, and maybe even before him, Schultes and his work, Richard Schultes and his work in Mesoamerica. Basically, what I'm setting up here is once we as a society or as a Western culture discovered this culture that did have a traditional use of mushrooms and a culture very much informed by that psychoactive use, did we suddenly want to see that everywhere after it was discovered? Yes, I think I think you're right. And really the the thing that changed everything was was LSD. Mescaline mm. to a certain extent, but the great sixties psychedelic revolution based on LSD opened people's eyes to psychedelics in a way that hadn't happened before. And so yes, people started to look for the secret psychedelic history of Buddhism or the secret psychedelic history of Christianity. And I understand why people 
want to do this. You know, we psychedelic cultures are marginalized. We we are in many cases, it's what we do is illegal. And in your neck of the woods, you can face some pretty stiff penalties, right? If you're caught consuming psychedelics or certainly dealing psychedelics. And so, and not only that, we're, we're culturally marginalized. We're told that we're escapists, we're infantile. The hippie is lampooned. The suffix da 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 on acid is just a way of sort of lampooning that the worst excesses of 60s culture. And so this idea that perhaps we're part of some ancient secret initiatory tradition that has persisted somehow despite being oppressed first by Christianity and then by modernity and science is deeply appealing. And I get that, you know, I've had those thoughts myself. It's just that often the evidence just evaporates and or it's like sand falling through our fingers or it's it's a case of being in the eye of the beholder. And you mentioned John Allegro, who thought he'd, he'd arrived at this conclusion through the study of philology, the comparative study of language. And he thought that ancient Aramaic actually contained all these veiled references to the fly agaric mushroom. Well, it doesn't take much, you know... <laughs> doesn't take a great scientist to say, hold on a minute, where were these fly agarics growing in Palestine? You know, a mushroom that grows in a mycorrhizal relationship in northern temperate forests is pretty rare in Palestine. So where were they getting it, you know? And, you know, this this is really the motivation for why I wrote the book Shroom. Whenever I picked up a book on psychedelics, I read the same stories over and over again. It was like it, it had become mythology. And my sense was that this was actually undermining the psychedelic cause by appealing to mythology we were making ourselves open to the attack of yeah but you're just escapists right you've blown your minds you've escaped from reality and you'll believe any old shit and i wanted to show that you can still hang on to rationality and reason and methods of critical examination and be psychedelic that the the one doesn't negate the other and so when the book first came out a lot of people thought i was being anti-psychedelic and i was and i wasn't at all it was done in service of psychedelia and saying look we don't we don't need to hang on to these myths we can be critical of these myths if we're to move forward we can we can take it on the chin and say yeah some of what we thought was true really there's no evidence for and we don't need it and I really don't think any kind of lawmaker is going to change their opinion on the basis of the fact that there's ancient usage in Mesopotamia or ancient Far East or whatever. You know, they want to know, is it safe? <laughs> and for that, they turn to science. And of course, now we do have that data, thanks to the amazing work that's being done at Imperial College and Johns Hopkins and in New York and so on. And for me, that concept is somehow novel that we're actually in a period of human history where psychedelic use is more, definitely more conscious. You know, I would believe that psychedelics have been a part of the human experience since prehistory. Of course, they would find different groups, would find these plants or these mushrooms, find an effect. And of course it would get passed around. I mean, that seems very believable, but the idea that it was more structured and it became the heart of many societies, you know, I would think it would probably still be 
marginalized and there would still be, you know, I don't think that story wouldn't have necessarily changed. So it's actually really heartening or really kind of amazing to be living through a period that could be the biggest psychedelic renaissance in human history where they're more widespread. The understanding of them is more widespread. The conscious imbibing of them is more widespread than ever before. Uh, I think that actually gives us a sense of the possibility for really transformational shifts in human societies that really didn't happen before. You know, there's something about that where we don't always, I, I'm a big fan of looking to the past and pulling insights forward, but it's great to think that we're actually on the, the leading edge and we don't have to have an experience that's already been informed by a past experience. And your work was the first time, as strange as it seems, that that had ever been posited. You know, so much of examining psychedelic culture, you find these roots and, well, this has been around for millennia. Many societies were based around, you know, eating mushrooms or psychedelic plants. So yeah, it was just this voice of, well, we don't know either way. And maybe that wasn't the case. Yeah, it didn't, didn't win me a lot of friends. <laughs> well, exactly. It's not the popular thing. You know, it's more popular to say, yes, Jesus was an Amanita mushroom, or yes, the Vedic yeah. Soma was definitely the Amanita mushroom. And you know, you can you can see some evidence there, but yeah, to be that voice of critical thinking, I think is is really important. I told you that before the show that I love your analysis of spirituality and psychedelia in that you don't have to lose rationality and reason. They can they can come together. McKenna said, reason is our friend. You know, reason applied to the weird edges or, you know, I'm misquoting him there, but, you know, you know, as you, as you were speaking, I was thinking that we are perhaps witnessing the, the birth of a, a new psychedelic priesthood through psychiatry and um, the great popularity of psychedelic retreat centers that are, are opening up and, and the rush to patent psychedelic chemicals and, and monetize psychedelia. And, I, I mean, I find it fascinating that this is this is happening, and of course, I will resist this because I don't want a psychiatrist telling me when and where I take psychedelics. It's not for me, thank you, and I'm sure we will. But there is a kind of carving up of psychedelia going on at the moment, and we could we could end up, as I said earlier, in the situation where they become legalized or decriminalized or legitimated, but there's only one context, and you've got to pay a lot of money to go and see a psychedelic therapist. And I, much as I want there to be psychedelic therapy, there has to be many models. And here where I think looking to the past or to other cultures can be really helpful is we can find other containers, other safe vessels for consuming psychedelics. So the medicine ceremony is mutating into Western culture and we're finding our own ways of doing it. You know, what, what is the right ceremonial context for taking mushrooms? Is it going to a festival? Is it going to Burning Man and, you know, galumphing around? Is it something more focused? What, what would it look like? What's the right music that would guide the experience? What, what is mushroom music? We're starting to find these other contexts. And so I'm a, I'm a great advocate for many, many, a plurality of contexts. Uh, I would hate there to be a monolithic priesthood saying, no, no, this is the only way you can do it in a converted hospital room with our authenticated playlist. Um, there have to be other ways. Likely a patented playlist and patented, quote, soft furniture. <laughs> uh, yes, we are seeing a lot of this 
carving up and territorialism around psychedelics, which would seem to be the opposite of the insights that are reached. We talk about, you know, permeating the self and it would seem to necessitate a wild diversity and plurality out of that to kind of funnel it through some existing structure doesn't seem entirely faithful to, to, I think, what we're trying to bring through. But it is interesting to think as a society moving toward a more psychedelically informed experience, really, you know, since the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, psychedelia became embedded into culture for folks that don't even eat psychedelics or participate in that experience. I mean, the colors, the graphics, the 60s are some really obvious examples where commercials are basically blatantly just trying to be, I mean, it happens now too. I mean, it's already informing our culture. And to think that this is really the first time in human history where that is the case, I, I just realized that might be, it's good to be mindful of that. So we don't assume that there is some beneficent historical roadmap that, oh, well, we already know it leads here. It's like, well, this is actually probably pretty novel and we should take great care with the direction uh, that it's heading. Right. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. You know, psychedelia is everywhere and I've lost track of the movies and shows that have implicit psychedelia in them. And, and you just know that the visual effects artists have all been there because they're, they're rendering it. Right? <laughs> well, and, you know, we're talking about this idea, a tagline that I had to bring up before we wrap up was this idea you've referenced before of, you know, we are becoming the mushroom people. Our society is becoming a mushroom society and we are becoming the mushroom people. It, what does that mean for you? Well, I think it it's this sense of what I was saying before of, of the mushrooms having agency upon us. There's a, there's a fungus called cordyceps. I, I'm sure you know about it and your listeners know about it that infects ants in the rainforest and grows its mycelium all through their bodies. And then at a certain point when it wants to reproduce, it changes the ant's behavior so that they climb up to the top of the tallest tree they can find to a leaf that's oriented towards the sun. And then at exactly 12 noon, the ant clamps its jaws shut. And then a mushroom, well, no, not a mushroom, a little sporophore grows out of its head and poof, off go the spores. And it's it's right. the stuff of science fiction, right? This, but... I don't think we're being sort of manipulated in that way, but we are now engaged in this deeply symbiotic relationship with psilocybin producing fungi. And yeah, we are the mushroom people. This is potentially the first, the biggest culture that's ever been like this. Sure, in Mesoamerica, absolutely, they were using mushrooms in this way. And potentially, you know, I'm not ruling it out in the European past as well. But potentially no other culture has been so psychedelically informed as ours. And we've already said it's it's seeping into our art, into our culture, into our language, into our discourse. I've yet to see it go into our political or economic. Well, it's there in our economics implicitly, but I've yet to see it affect our political structures. But but maybe that's to come. Hopefully. Yeah, one, one doesn't have to go old sci-fi to try and imagine more utopian futures. I, I mean, I think that's the excitement. Um, of course, McKenna thought it would open us to membership of galactic civilization. And as a total sci-fi nerd, I can only hope that that's coming. But uh... <laughs> once they decide our bodies have fused enough with some kind of fungal mycelium, that gets us into the intergalactic consortium. We can only hope. I mean, I mean, 
I'm happy to go down that road and see where it leads. I think it's, I don't want to say it's bound to be better than what we're doing now, <laughs> but that would be a future I can get behind. We can, but hope. Well, you know, we've really touched on bits and pieces of your incredibly interesting body of work. I'm sure anyone listening wants to read more of your work, listen to your lectures. I mean, where's the best place for people to find you uh, and find your work? So I think pretty much all my papers are up on academia.edu. You can find me there and read my my academic work. And, um, you know, I don't I don't have a website and I used to have a blog and it's dead because I'm too busy to maintain it. But I do have I'm contactable through that blog. And, you know, just just Google me and you'll find me. Yeah. Isn't that useless? I have an Instagram account as well. You can find me on Instagram. And that's just stuff that I like. Perfect. We'll we'll put all of that links to the podcast. People can search your name on YouTube, Andy Letcher on YouTube, on Google, and just find tons of fascinating information. And then you've said that, you know, you're busy. You know, all of us have had kind of a crazy year in one way or another, inevitably. But do you have any projects there on the horizon? Anything uh, exciting that you're working on or, or maybe just, you know, life events? But w- what's next for you? So work-wise, I um, have just created a new master's program, an MA called Engaged Ecology, which I run at Schumacher College here in the UK, where we cover a lot of these themes. Actually, what we've been talking about is is kind of grist to our mill on Engaged Ecology. So do check that out on the, the Schumacher College website. That keeps me pretty busy, but I'm researching the use of psychedelics within contemporary druidry in Britain. And I've also got a little side project that's emerged out of that. I'm very interested in the use of the fly agaric mushroom. And I'm starting to interview people who use the fly agaric mushroom in a, in a ritual or religious context. So do I'm looking to recruit people who have that relationship with that mushroom to talk to. So if you're remotely interested, do get in touch. And that's really interesting because it's, it's a totally different chemical. Chemically, it's very different to the tryptamine hallucinogens. It's arguably not even a psychedelic at all. It's something else. Works on a whole different set of neurotransmitters and has a totally different cultural set of cultural resonances. So that's that's growing. It's mushrooming as a project. There's loads <laughs> of writing I want to do when I get the chance, and hopefully that will happen sooner rather than later. I'm not sure it gets much more alluring and fascinating than druids taking psychedelics, uh, druids taking amanitas. I mean, just fascinating work on the horizon. And I'm just kind of tangentially familiar with different Celtic and druidic writings about, you know, fruits under birch trees and some of the, I mean, the spotted fish that they talk about. So any kind of written tradition does have some allusions potentially to amanita. So really fascinating work. Then I'll have you leave us, Andy, with three questions I like to ask all of my guests because it always elicits some kind of great answer. The first one is usually the most challenging, and that is a mushroom that you love and why. And with folks where we've generally talked about one mushroom, I try to say other than, so maybe other than the psilocybe genus. (laughs) No, that's on the table as well, but just a mushroom that you love and why. Hmm. Well, can I say the fly agaric? I'm going to say the fly agaric. Of course. Uh, fly agaric. Amanita muscaria. I love it because it's it's so provocative. It's unmistakable. Well, I hope it's unmistakable. 
it's related to some very poisonous mushrooms. So please make sure you know what it, you're picking. You know, you, it, it grows in association with birch trees and other trees, and it's it's vivid and it attracts all this mythology, all this speculation. Though actually finding people who use it regularly is really quite difficult. And I love that that it even without our consuming it, it's a cultural catalyst. So I love that about it. Yes, definitely a cultural catalyst. You can find pretty much anyone in the world talk about mushroom, and that is the mushroom they think of, maybe the world's most famous mushroom. Uh, and then more generally, you've had a very interesting relationship with Kingdom Fungi, but what has that relationship given to you? You know, How has that changed? And this can be anything from spiritual, ecological, likely though those are probably mixed, uh, but any of those perspectives, You know, what has that relationship given to you? Well, in exactly the ways I've described, mushrooms have revealed the world animistically to me in a way that I've been permanently changed. Not, not, it's not that you know my brain has been somehow rewired, but it's like once you've noticed something, once you've seen something, you can't unnotice it. Once your mind notices the ticking clock, it's very difficult to blank it out. So having seen the aliveness and the isness of the vegetable kingdom, through the mushroom dyes, it, I can't not notice it. But it, but more generally, the fungi challenge my inherent anthropocentrism. Can't say the word. What does it mean to be a body that is perhaps a mind and a stomach at the same time that can move its nuclei around that? Clearly, there's some some kind of intelligence in the mycelium. It can make decisions. It can choose to grow this way rather than that way to a source of food or not. Yeah, that shunts its its nuclei around, its cell nuclei around, that its whole sense of gender. I mean, the mushroom-producing fungi can mate with any any other of the same species that's a different mating type and there can be hundreds if not thousands of mating types so our ideas of of binary gender and form and physicality are totally challenged by the fungi and then how can something that is microscopic suddenly produce a structure that's macroscopic imagine being able to extrude our fingers and produce the empire state building i mean it's like that <laughs> so they they challenge what it means to be a living organism. And I find that deeply refreshing. You know, all, my, all these implicit assumptions about aliveness and, and form and being in the world, they don't just turn it upside down. They, they digest it, <laughs> <laughs> reform it. Right. Much like the cordyceps, they infect those notions and make something else explode out of the head. Right. I, I think that was beautifully put. And I think that we can't possibly understand or even imagine yet how understanding all of these biological realities and just more understanding and the questions that fungi elicit, how that will change our narratives as humans, how that will then ripple out and change societies. We're just on kind of the, the very beginning of this, I think, incredible trajectory uh, in seeing the world through bemushroomed eyes. And then the last question that I had is just kind of in that same vein, but the greatest hope you have for our collective future 
with fungi, kind of the, the best aspirations or the best case scenario. I know you said you can be a bit of a pessimist. We're going to pull on the optimist hat. The best case scenario and aspirations we can have for a, a fungi-centric society. Well, you know, zero carbon, more utopian society where we we fully appreciate each other in our glorious diversity and we fully appreciate being in the world and the sheer miracle of, of being alive, being conscious that we're alive and being in the presence of so many delicious, extraordinary beings, the other than human. I mean, I, I never cease to marvel at the wonders of the world. And if that were the way we orient our culture, yeah, deliciousness, the deliciousness of being in the world and with so many beautiful human beings and other than human beings. That would just be amazing, wouldn't it? That, <laughs> Worth getting out of bed for. Exactly. That is the world that I want to bring into being. And in talking with you, you give such an amazing perspective. You make it seem like it's possible and you make it seem very tangible and real. So uh, Andy, thank you for coming on and sharing thoughts on some really complicated topics. You know, you're dealing with my kind of open-ended questions and I'm trying to muse ideas out of myself here with you and you're catching it and transforming it into beautiful insights. So just thank you so much for coming on the show and, and giving us your time. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure. I've thor thoroughly enjoyed myself and thank you for asking such great questions and for being such a good listener and drawing all this stuff out of me um, it's been a good sympoesis <laughs>